Welcome back to the PFC Podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC Podcast. This is Dennis and today I'm talking with uh, Dr. Van Wyk and we are going to talk about herniation and herniation syndromes. How are you doing tonight, Doc? I'm doing all right, Dennis. Uh, how are you? I'm doing well. Um, so, you know, obviously, we've talked about uh, traumatic brain injury a couple times, and uh, we went over the the new CPG. But uh, talking with you and with some other guys, um, you know, there's herniation, and then there's you know there's herniation. There's different ways that this this can happen, and that can have different effects on the body and uh, as part of our clinical exam. So if you would, uh, I'd like to deep dive into, uh, I guess, all those different types of herniation. So if you could, I guess, as a, in, a, in a general way, what exactly is herniation? Yeah, so generally speaking, herniation is, is shift of, of tissue from its normal location into an adjacent space. So there's all different types of hernias. In fact, um, a lot of people are familiar with uh, some of the abdominal hernias, umbilical hernias, uh, hiatal hernias, inguinal hernias, which is, which is kind of abdominal region as well. Um, and that's all abdominal content that has moved to a different location where it's generally not supposed to be. And in traumatic brain injury, for reasons that I uh, will get into here shortly, the same process can occur, but because it's in such a confined space and there's not much room for that tissue to move around, um, uh, especially safely, it can result in, in a very, very dangerous situation for the patient uh, that, uh, that, that puts them at, at, at high risk for death. So it's important to understand uh, that very basic definition and then work towards preventing and or identifying very quickly when you believe that that, that, type, of, uh, that type of physiology or pathophysiology is occurring. Okay, so um, could you quickly go over um, the Monroe Kelly doctrine and how these different compartments uh, try to compensate uh, for each other? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Monroe Kelly is is one of the the, the basic uh, discussions that that we have. Certainly, whenever I talk about uh, intracranial pressure and and herniation syndromes, and basically what Monroe Kelly says is that the skull is a rigid enclosure um, and that it, it contains three components uh, that each have a fixed volume. So the first one is, is brain tissue itself, which in most adults is going to be between 1,300 to 1,400 milliliters, which is about 49 ounces or three pounds uh, for, for people that wanted to convert it over. Uh, the second is cerebral spinal fluid, which makes up about 150 milliliters. Uh, and then the third is, is, is blood, most of it in the venous system, uh, much, much less uh, in the arterial, but it's also about 150 milliliters. So what you've got is about 80% brain tissue and then 10% cerebral spinal fluid and, and blood. And the, the easiest way to think about this is, uh, and, and I, use, I like to use this graphic when I, when I talk about this, is if we've got three boxes, each side by side with, with, with the compartment representing brain in the middle, and then on either side, a compartment for cerebral spinal fluid and for blood. And there's faucets on either end of those. 
So under normal circumstances, there's nothing draining out of the faucet because like we said earlier, we've got a fixed volume in each of those compartments. So let's now introduce some type of extra volume that is not normally present into that brain compartment. So that could be swelling. Uh, in, in other cases, it could be, uh, could be a tumor. It could be, uh, it could be blood uh, in the case of the hemorrhage. Now we've got, we've got an extra volume that is beginning to take up space really in an area where there is no space to accommodate that volume. So in order for the brain to continue functioning uh, and, not, and not undergo additional injury, the other compartment has to decrease. That brain compartment is, is increasing. So <clears throat> the compensatory phase of this is, and again, imagine the faucets on the two ends there. Now we're opening those faucets and we're moving blood and CSF out of the intracranial compartment. So one of the reasons we talk about putting people uh, uh, into a, uh, a neutral position in terms of their head while we elevate the bed is so that you can drain venous blood out of the intracranial cavity uh, and into the neck and into the, and into the thorax. And then, uh, and then CSF is actually shunted into the spinal cord um, <clears throat> so that there's, there's additional room for this expanding mass inside of the, inside of the, the cranial vault. But at some point, you're going to run out of blood to move out of the, of the, of the cranial cavity and uh, CSF to move out as well. And now you're going to experience brain tissue movement in order to accommodate that increasing mass. And that's where you start to get some of these signs and symptoms of herniation uh, or, or a worsening neurological exam to suggest that, that, that you've reached that phase where you can no longer compensate. This is the, this is the phase where uh, that intracranial pressure starts to, starts to increase significantly, uh, again, because, because there's nothing else left to push out in, the, in those blood and those CSF compartments. And this is, this is, this is where, uh, if you don't recognize this and act this quickly, uh, you'll be dealing with an emergency that can kill your patient. Obviously, you know, the, this is not like an on-off thing. Um, the body, like you mentioned, compensates through uh, movement of blood or movement of cerebral spinal fluid. Does the, the type of injury or the type of herniation or the, where the swelling happens, does that um, also have a say in it? Or um, is this kind of a universal uh, type thing, meaning the entire brain will move, not just a region? That's a great question, and and I think that that's one of the things that I wanted to get across to, to the audience that's listening is that um, a lot of times when we talk about herniation, it, we're stressing um, we're stressing more of a diffuse or a global process. But in some cases, the swelling can be uh, a regional process, so the injury can be a regional process. And if you don't recognize that and manage it, you can you can overlook it until it becomes. Uh, uh, a large enough uh, injury or secondary injury to become a more diffuse and global process. I actually had a patient not that long ago uh, at Duke who was a gunshot wound to the head. And um, we would love to have, I think, in the field environment, a way to continuously monitor intracranial pressure. Uh, and, and we've been looking at different ways to do that. There's certainly a lot of um, devices in the pipeline to do that. But in this particular patient who, who had an, an extraventricular drain uh, located in the third ventricle, which is, is oftentimes considered the gold standard uh, for, for intracranial uh, pressure monitoring uh, and, and drainage, um, 
we had a patient who was continuing to manifest with, with a Cushing's response essentially. And, um, and, and intermittently worsening neuro exam findings, despite the fact that EVD was telling us that the ICPs, the intracranial pressures, were within normal limits. And the waveform was good, so there was no reason to believe that that wasn't happening. So we had a couple of options. There was, there was the potential that there was something else occurring related to the brain injury, like proxismal sympathetic hyperactivity. We've talked about that before. Uh, but the one that we were thinking, based off of the, uh, the patterns of injury, is that the, uh, the swelling was really occurring at a, at a lower level, an infrasensorial uh, location uh, below where the EVD was able to read pressures. Uh, so it's not that there wasn't high ICP, it just wasn't diffuse uh, or it hadn't spread far enough so that that EVD would pick it up and tell us that there was a problem. It was occurring in a different part of the brain that we weren't able to monitor. So that's where I think your, uh, your, your, your knowledge of some of the attorneyation syndromes your knowledge of neuroanatomy can really come in handy, especially in the field, because you start to spot these things, even with the advanced monitoring equipment. Sometimes you have to look at it and say, I, I don't think I don't trust this number or I don't believe this number. I think this is giving me a false idea about what's actually occurring. And, and, and these are my concerns. Uh, and and, and th- this is a perfect example of, uh, of where that that sort of situation occurred. Absolutely. You know, the adage of uh, you treat the patient, not the monitor. Um, definitely, uh, I think applies right there. Exactly. Um, so how, I guess, hmm. how, I guess, um, depending on the location of, of this herniation or the swelling or whatever defect is there, um, how are these, are these, how are these herniations classified or how are these defects classified? Yeah, so in the broad sense, um, we've got our, our intracranial herniations, and there, there's a couple of different subtypes of those. The big ones being um, subfalcine herniations, uh, what we call downward transcentorial herniation, and there's there's two types in there, lateral and central. Uh, and then the, the lateral type has an anterior and posterior subtype. Uh, and then you've also got ascending transcentorial her- herniation, because sometimes uh, the swelling and the movement will take the path of least resistance. So instead of things moving down, like we classically talk about, sometimes things will move up. Um, but that can be just as dangerous. Uh, and then you've got tonsillar herniation, which is, which is really the lower levels of the, uh, of the cerebellum moving through the frame and magnum and compressing the, the lowest part of the brainstem, uh, the medulla, and, and actually moving into the, uh, uh, into the spinal canal as well. So those are your those are the, uh, the broad categories, the, the names for the uh, intracranial herniations. You've also got extracranial herniations, which can occur. Um, really, just to mention in, in that category, you, you see that uh, most frequently with some in uh, some type of post-surgical situations. So if there's been a craniotomy or a craniectomy, if it's too small, usually, uh, or if there's been some type of skull fracture or penetration of the um, of the uh, of the cranial vault you can see brain move through that in sort of a mushroom appearance. And uh, in, in the field setting, that would be, that would be very, very bad. Um, and then there's a couple of other types too, that I, I really think people overlook uh, like paradoxical herniation, um, which, uh, which is a, a type of herniation that occurs after you take the skull off, uh, which, which we can talk about here in a little bit. If you, if you want to know more about that one. Uh, and then uh, intracranial hypotension can actually result in herniation hypotension, meaning that instead of a high ICP, we actually have a low ICP. And we can talk about that one here in a little bit too, if you'd like as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. So since we've gone through kind of the broad categories of, of herniation, you have intracranial and extracranial. Um, just looking at, I would imagine, extracranial and the paradoxical uh, herniation from the actual treatment of uh, uh, intracranial pressure. I think those seem pretty, uh, the, the extracranial ones seem pretty obvious as far as it, you have gray matter coming out of the skull. So if we, yeah. if you don't mind, let's stick with the intracranial ones that I think will probably be a little uh, more difficult to suss out. Um, sure. In your practice, uh, what are what are some of the more common uh, herniation syndromes that you've run into? All right. So uh, before we before we talk about those, let me let me caveat or recommend uh, that for the folks listening, if you have the ability to pull up a netter plate or open an anatomy textbook. Uh, and, and, and look at some of this, it, it, will, it will help you immensely visualize what it is what we're talking about. So uh, uh, some type of visual aid uh, is, is highly recommended if you're, able to, if you're able to get one. I'll try and explain it as best I can, uh, but if you can see the structures that we're talking about, um, it, will, it, it will make a lot more sense to you uh, about what's going on. And then the other thing that I'll, I'll caveat too is that there, there are different names for these types of, of herniation syndrome. Some people will uh, name them by the anatomy. Uh, some people will name them by uh, what uh, what structures the, the the brain is moving towards or around. Um, so, and and that's the way that I've chosen to to, to characterize them because I think that that's uh, that that's fairly easy to, to understand. Uh, if you start using terms like uncus and and uncle herniation, oh, okay, yeah, I know what that is. All right, where's the uncus? And not everybody knows where exactly the uncus is located. So. But I, I think if we can define some of these uh, some of these structures that the herniations occur in and around, uh, that it will make a lot more sense. So, your first question was, what are the more common uh, herniation types? And um, the type that we talk about that a lot of times we flash pictures up uh, is actually uh, a type of downward transitorial herniation, which we'll come back to. But the most common type of herniation syndrome is actually something called subfalcine herniation, um, which can also have names like midline shift or cingulate herniation. And the cingulate, by the way, is it's a, it's a medial brain structure uh, or gyrus or fold, and it's responsible for emotions and behavior as well as some, some uh, uh, autonomic motor function. But you get subfalcine herniation with unilateral injury or disease of the frontal, parietal, or temporal lobe. Now, the name subfalcine is referring to a structure in the midline of the brain called the falc cerebri. And this is basically an extension of the dura. So it's quite rigid. It's quite tough. Uh, and it moves down into the interhemispheric fissure, which is that line that sort of divides the left brain and the right brain. So now when we're talking about a, a medial uh, structure like the cingulate moving underneath uh, downward and underneath that, that structure, it starts to make sense about how the brain is shifting when you've got uh, swelling or a bleed or some other mass lesion that is occurring on, on one of the, the frontal, parietal, or temporal lobes and moving the brain in that opposite direction. So what happens is, is the, the ipsilateral cingulate or the cingulate on the side of the lesion is moved medially and then down and under the fault, uh, just like we talked about. And, and again, this is kind of a, it's kind of a sickle-shaped layer of dura, and it descends vertically uh, in the interhemispheric fissure, divides it in half, 
Um, the anterior fox is is, uh, is rigid, but the posterior portion of the fox is actually uh, wider and more rigid. So it's harder to get displacement in the posterior uh, part of the uh, of, of the brain. So you don't see this quite as often with uh, with parietal lobe lesions because the uh, the fox tends to be thicker in that area. But the frontal and temporal lobes certainly can. Um, and uh, so so most of it occurs anteriorly. Um, the way that you would identify this is, uh, and, and this is very different from what we talk about when we talk about blown pupils uh, and, and weakness on one side of the body, like we'll, we'll talk about with another type. The clinical presentation for this, so very early on, can be your, uh, your sort of uh, basic and nonspecific intracranial uh, hypertension symptoms, which would be headache, nausea, vomiting, persist- uh, particularly if they're persistent. When it gets more severe, what happens, and as that, as that cingulate is moving underneath that fault, uh, you get compression of, uh, of some other structures around the fault. You can get compression of the cingulate gyrus on the other side. Uh, and you can also end up with, with hydrocephalus, which is, which is water on the brain, if it prevents some of that CSF from moving around like it normally does. Now, again, all of this is, 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 is what's happening. You won't be able to see this. But some of the signs and symptoms I'm about to talk about here are what you would be looking for to really make you suspect that this is what's going on. So once you start moving or compressing the cingulate, like I mentioned earlier, it's, it's involved in emotions and behavior. Some of, the, some of the behavioral changes that you might see when this is occurring would be apathy or a lack of interest or concerns. If you've got a patient that's originally very worried about what's happening to them uh, and their injuries, and then they suddenly stop. Then that would be a, that would be something that would uh, that you could consider to be an apathetic patient or an apathetic change in their in their mental status. So there's another one called hypobulia or abulia uh, in extreme cases, and that's the sort of indecisiveness, the lack of motivation, a lack of willpower, um, and, and just a generalized indifference that the patient develops that may or may not have been there before. So some subtle changes in uh, in mental status might be an indicator of something bad going on. Uh, in, in terms of displaced brain tissue. The big one, though, um, is related to uh, one of the arterial structures in this region that, that sort of runs uh, in that cingulate and interhemispheric uh, region is compression of the anterior cerebral artery. So folks may remember that the anterior cerebral artery is responsible for supplying uh, uh, blood to the areas of the motor and sensory cortex that represent the lower extremities. So I think a lot of times we sort of forget the lower extremities and, uh, and if the patient is awake or in talking, if they move their arms, follow the man of the upper extremities, the legs are sort of just there. Uh, and, and we don't go in and test those as, as, as readily or regularly, but you really have to pay attention because when you've got the swelling and you've got a, a subfalcine herniation that's building up and occurring, you're going to lose leg strength on the opposite side. So if it's on the right side, where that swelling is, is, is occurring and it's moving the brain, shifting the brain over towards the left, uh, you're usually going to get compression uh, of that uh, uh, of that ACA and you're going to get left-sided weakness that occurs. And then if it gets real severe, you can end up with bilateral weakness if both of those uh, cerebral arteries, uh, anterior cerebral arteries are compressed. Uh, and that can lead, of course, to, to uh, infarct and, and, and secondary brain injury. So those, those would be the big ones uh, that I would say to look for um, if you're suspecting uh, subfalcine herniation. And occasionally you can get some other defects too. You can get a, uh, a visual or motor hemi neglect if, uh, 
if the pericolosal artery, which is the branch of the ACA, is compressed or involved. You can also get what's called an apraxia, which is the ability to perform uh, or, or the ability to, uh, uh, to do something in terms of strength. The motor strength is present, but it's a higher cortical function. So you see somebody move their arms, but when you ask them to perform a specific function with it, for example, they can't actually do that. So it's not a strength problem. It's more of a uh, it's more of a motor, an autonomic motor function or a motor planning problem. So you can see that a lot of times too, if uh, if 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 you've got a more severe subfalcine herniation. But subfalcine herniation is definitely the most common type uh, of herniation syndrome. Um, one quick question about that. So, you know, headache, nausea, vomiting. That's pretty. I mean, that can be lots of things. Um, but the lower extremity weakness. Would you say differentiating that between some kind of spinal insult would be that uh, with the subfalcine or midline shift, you're going to get generally uh, unilateral versus bilateral uh, defect? Yeah, it, 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 it depends. There's certainly that worry. And hopefully if you've got a, if you've got a suspicion for a spinal cord injury, um, uh, then a lot of times you're going to pick up some type of leg involvement and it may require a more detailed exam to be able to do that. It may require you to look into some reflexes that are going to be off as well. I think the key here is that if, if you do a good initial neuro exam and, and your, your leg strength is intact or symmetric, and then a little bit later on it's not, that's, that's reason to think that you've got some type of expanding mass that's, that's causing that, especially if it's asymmetric. Um, it's, it's always a little bit trickier if you think that you've got combined uh, uh, spinal cord disease or trauma in addition to the brain trauma. Um, but, uh, but what you're really looking for here is somebody who is at a certain baseline uh, and then progresses to something. And also in conjunction with some of these other, these other symptoms, like the changes in the mental status, like I, like I just went over, that's not going to occur with a spinal cord injury, but that certainly will occur with subfalcine herniation to some degree. Outstanding. Um, so, you know, comparing that subfalcine to the more, you know, I guess classically taught. Or when we talk about TBI, you know, you talk about Cushing's triad and and uh, pupillary changes and things like that. Uncle herniation. Um, is there any differences between, uh, I guess, where that herniation is occurring, or is it all just forcing through that uh, frame and magnum, and they're all generally pretty equal? Yeah, the um, so the uh, so this is the other structure that I wanted to make sure we went over because it's going to be important for talking about this and for, for understanding some of the uh, 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 the next type of, uh, of of herniation syndrome. So the other dural reflection, the other piece of, of dura that uh, that extends um, uh, from the outer portions of the brain is, is something called the pentorium cerebelli or cerebellar pentorium. And this is kind of, what that means in Latin is actually is cerebellar tent. And the reason it's called cerebellar tent is because it actually looks very much like a tent. So uh, the, the anterior border of the structure is, is kind of free and concave. Um, and it, uh, uh, it's attached uh, behind uh, by its convex border to the occipital bone and some of the ridges in that area there. And it also encloses the transverse sinus, which is some of the the veins in the back of the, uh, the cranial vault as well. And then in the front, uh, it attaches to the, the features portions of the temporal bone on both sides, 
and includes includes excuse me some of the uh, some of the other sinuses in that area, the petrosal sinuses. So, um, and it's got an opening in the middle of it that we call the uh, tentorial notch or the tentorial incisura is the other name for that. So. The reason that this is important is that this is the structure that um, that a lot of these uh, uh, these uh, parts of the brain that we're going to talk about here with downward transcentorial herniation. This is what they have to move over because again, this is a very rigid structure. But it's also important when we talk about neuroanatomy in the broad sense because we usually say things like supracentorial and infratentorial, and that's what that's referring to is the structure of the the centorium uh, uh, cerebelli. So great uh, a great thing to actually look up take a take a, 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 a gander at in uh, an anatomy textbook and it will become a little bit more clear uh, um, exactly what this is and where it's located and what it's, what it's covering up. But it divides essentially the, uh, the brain stem and the cerebellum from the rest of the brain, from the more superior portions of the brain. So with that in mind, we can talk about the uh, second most common type of herniation syndrome and actually the one that most people are probably more familiar with because they know terms like uncle herniation uh, or central herniation, for example, but that's the uh, downward transtemporal herniation syndromes. And there are two broad categories of DTH, uh, uh, which is uh, what, how we'll shorthand it here. Um, and that's the, the lateral and the central types. And then the lateral has two subtypes, the anterior and the posterior. And for the lateral hernias, what we're talking about is, uh, well, well, we'll start with the anterior, which is your uncle herniation. So, um, Basically, you will get something like this from a unilateral supracentorial lesion in what's called the middle cranial fossa. So you get inferior and medial movement that pushes the uncus, which is one of the more anterior portions of the temporal lobe, over the free edge of that tentorium cerebelli, and it begins to compress the, uh, the uh, adjacent uh, uh, brainstem, uh, primarily the midbrain and then some of the cranial nerve in that, in that area. So this is kind of that classic herniation syndrome that we talk about in lectures where you can get acute loss of consciousness uh, because your descending arousal pathways are affected uh, or if it causes fluid to build up in the brain or hydrocephalus, uh, the, the same process can occur. You get that ipsilateral, that same side pupillary dilatation because the third cranial nerve is compressed. You get opposite side weakness because of the cortical spinal tract uh, being affected and them not having the chance to, to decussate at the level of the, of the medulla like they, like they do. So you get the opposite side weakness. And um, uh, occasionally you can get some uh, medial and temporal lobe infarcts, or ex uh, excuse me, medial uh, and uh, uh, medial temporal and occipital uh, lobe infarcts uh, that will cause some visual changes, uh, an inability to read, and sometimes loss of smell. So those may be more subtle signs too. Uh, uh, that, that may manifest with these particular patients. So the, the pupil size is probably going to be the first thing that you see with this uh, because the, the fibers that are responsible for um, constricting the pupil or making it smaller are on the outside of the third cranial nerve. So if you compress that, all it can do really is get, is get bigger. Uh, so that causes that pupillary asymmetry that you see. But as that gets worse, as that compression worsens, that herniation worsens, the eye will also move into a down and outward position. So that's what we call um, a, uh, uh, a full cranial nerve three palsy uh, because it's not just those, uh, those outside fibers that are involved. So, and th the problem is, is that if this progresses enough, um, uh, 
uh, anterior uh, herniation or, or uncle herniation uh, within that lateral category can progress to lethargy, coma, and death uh, because it actually becomes what's, what's called a central herniation, which I'll get to in a moment, uh, where you're causing uh, essentially a downward movement of all the structures above the brainstem onto the brainstem itself and all of the important uh, functions that the brainstem uh, provides are now unable to, to do so. So that's the, uh, that's the anterior, or the uncle herniation. The, the posterior herniation, still within the lateral category, uh, is something that you get with occipital and, and posterior temporal disease. Um, I, I, I don't see this one quite as often, but essentially what happens with this is, uh, is a, a portion of the temporal lobe that's a, that's a bit behind the uncle, it's called the perihippocampal gyrus, is pushed down into that tentorial notch that we talked about, the tentorium cerebelli, and it displaces and rotates the brainstem itself. Now, this is interesting because it produces something that is known as Paranaud syndrome. So I'm about to, to talk about something that is, uh, that is very, very neurology, and it's typically on board exams for neurologists. Uh, and it's probably, it's probably something that most people have not heard of, but you can get this, and essentially the major components of a Paranaud syndrome or that compression of the brainstem, is an upward gaze palsy, which is the most common. So you'll see people look down. They have a preference for downward gaze. And this is what we call the setting sun sign. So if they can't look up and they prefer to look down and have that setting sun sign, that's that upward gaze palsy. And then you can get what are, what are uh, often described as irregular oscillations of the eyes, particularly when they try to look up. And then you can get something called a light near dissociation, which is uh, uh, you don't get good consistency restriction or change in pupil size when you're using a light. But if you use uh, near and far objects, pupils will change in size when you're looking at far away objects versus closer up objects, you will continue to have or see that change in pupil size that you're not getting anymore with the light. And then the last one is what we call Collier's sign, which is, uh, which is a bilateral lid retraction as well. Um, and this is all related to cranial nerve uh, and cranial nerve nuclei deficits that occur with, with Paranaut syndrome. So that is a, uh, you get less compression, I should say, to or add of, uh, of the oculomotor nerve um, and, the, uh, and, and the posterior cerebellar artery the way that you would with an anterior or an uncle herniation. So you don't see those as often. But, but this, this series of uh, symptoms called Paranaud syndrome in a TBI patient could be indicative of that, uh, of that lateral category, posterior herniation. And then the last one is that uh, is the central herniation. And this is the most dangerous one. A lot of times the other herniations that we've talked about up to this point uh, uh, will, uh, will progress to a central hernia uh, or herniation if it's, if it's not intervened upon. And this is a descent of, of the diencephalon. The diencephalon meaning uh, it's a group of structures that usually encompasses the thalamus and the hypothalamus. But the, the descent of that structure onto the midbrain and the pons. And you'll usually see this with bilateral supratentorial disease to both sides injury on both sides of the brain, uh, with midline masses, uh, with, with real severe brain edema or hydrocephalus. And like say, if you've got one of the other hernia uh, types uh, and, and syndromes that progress um, unimpeded, it can, it can end up, you can end up with a central herniation as well. So uh, this can end up uh, manifesting as uh, posterior cerebral artery infarcts, which will usually affect vision. So it usually cause some type of uh, visual field cut. Um, you can end up with an ocular motor palsy as well. You can get decerebrate posturing, uh, and then it can progress to coma and death. So those are some of the signs for a central herniation, uh, particularly that coma. If they, if they get comatose really quickly, then, uh, then you, you can probably be worried 
that even if you had a different herniation subtype, it's progressed to central herniation, uh, and, and that patient is in a very, very bad state. So that, that essentially encompasses our, our DTHs, our downward transtentorial herniations. Um, are there any types of intracranial herniation um, that's going to throw off, you know, really, you know, different signals in our exam that we need to be aware of? Yeah, so, so in addition to the, the kind of the, the unique findings that I described with each of the previous ones, the only other two uh, uh, were really three types of, um, of, uh, of intracranial herniations that, that we can think about are uh, going to be what's called ascending transitorial uh, herniation, excuse me. So I, you know, I, we talked about downward movement or downward displacement of brain tissues uh, pretty extensively so far. But remember that the, the swelling is going to occur in different places in some instances. Uh, and, and it's really going to, the movement of that brain tissue is going to take the path of least resistance. So sometimes that ends up being an upward movement. So a mass effect originating in the posterior uh, cranial fossa, for example, tends to move uh, brain tissue in an upward direction. So you get upward displacement um, of uh, posterior fossa structures, of cerebellar structures through that tentorial notch uh, instead of downward. Um, so lesions in the cerebellum, uh, or in some cases, a, a sudden relief of a supertentorial intracranial uh, hypertension. So if you, if you drill a hole uh, with the intent of relieving some pressure, sometimes you can actually do more harm than good and cause, uh, cause that upward herniation that we're describing here. But that's going to typically present uh, with a lot of your common brainstem uh, and cerebellar uh, compression symptoms. So cranial nerve deficits, uh, ataxia, some unusual eye movements, some nystagmoid eye movements, for example. Um, uh, but all of that is occurring as a result of, of increased ICP, uh, just like everything else. The other one uh, that people are oftentimes familiar with, at least in name, is, uh, is tonsillar herniation. So tonsillar herniation is referring to uh, a, a part of the cerebellum known as the cerebellar tonsils that are displaced inferiorly um, into the cervical spinal canal through the foramen magnum. So we've, we've moved away from dural openings, and now we're talking about openings in the skull. Uh, and this occurs most often with some type of intra, uh, infratentorial mass, so something in the brainstem itself, uh, or has something that has progressed to affect the brainstem or, or the cerebellum. So when we talk about decompressive hemicraniectomies, we have to remember that it's not always just taking off uh, uh, part of the skull uh, in, in the places that we typically think of. Sometimes you have to do posterior decompressions if some of the different infratentorial structures are involved, and those are, those are much more complex surgeries. Um, but, uh, but you essentially have an infratentorial mass that causes a downward mass effect, and uh, it can occur uh, in association sometimes with real severe um, downward transtentorial herniation, particularly central herniation, um, but you get compression of the fourth ventricle, which can cause a hydrocephalus. Uh, and then you can get cerebellar infarcts, particularly of the, uh, it's, it's much lower. So it's the, um, it's the posterior inferior cerebellar artery that is frequently affected. But the big one here uh, is that if, if you've got tonsillar herniation, it's going to affect the lowest levels of the brainstem, the medulla in particular. And that's where your cardiorespiratory control centers are. So what you're really worried about is, uh, is, is a sudden cardiac uh, uh, or, or more likely a sudden respiratory arrest as a result of the compression of those critical brainstem structures. 
And then the last one is, is pretty rare. Um, you don't see these all that often. And it's what's called a trans-alar herniation. Um, and they're usually, they're usually associated with subfalcine or, or DTH herniation subtypes. And um, one of them is called the descending trans-alar herniation. It's the frontal lobe. Uh, that is, is displaced and compresses some of the uh, 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 arteries uh, or branches of the middle cerebral artery against the sphenoid ridge. You can end up with a middle cerebral artery infarct, which if it's on the left side, it may affect language. If it's on the uh, right side, it typically will cause a neglect syndrome or a hemi-neglect. And then the other type is what's called an ascending uh, or uh, uh, trans-alar herniation, and that is a temporal lobe displacement superior and anterior, so kind of the opposite of what we just talked about across the sphenoid ridge. Uh, and this one will oftentimes uh, cause compression of the supraclinoid um, uh, ICA or um, uh, 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 carotid artery uh, against the, uh, some bony processes there as well, which leads to infarcts of the ACA and the MCA since the internal carotid artery branches into those two. So that can cause the same types of symptoms that we were talking about above with the descending version, but also it can cause some leg weakness as well uh, because the ACAs are involved. But this one, this one is much less common than, uh, and of all of them, it's probably the least common, but, but uh, uh, you won't see this one as often. I, I, I actually, I can't think of a patient where I've seen one of these in particular. <laughs> you know, going through all these different you know types of herniation, you know, I think it's super important to, you know, talk about how the different signs and symptoms, you know, correlated. First, uh, one, the sub, uh, subfalcine, you know, the different changes, the behavioral changes, uh, the lower lower extremity weakness, mm-hmm. and, um, things like that. You know, ascending, ten, uh, whatever that one was, the, the ascending one, um, the ATH, how about that? The, um, uh, the Yeah, the, the ascending subtype of the DTH, yes, yes, correct. Yes, yes. <laughs> Almost got it. Um, and how you can have changes in gaze and, and things like that. Um, on top of, you know, the things that we're normally looking for when we're thinking uh, uh, a major uh, TBI. Now, when it comes to finding it, I think all those subtleties are definitely very important. But when it comes to treating it, um, you know, are there really any changes depending on what type of herniation we're talking about in the field? Yeah, not significantly. The the one thing, if if the audience took takes home anything from this, because a lot of this was was anatomy heavy, um, which is why I recommended the plates at the beginning. Please go back and look at those if you're confused and lost, um, and, and and look at it in conjunction with what we're talking about. I promise it will make more sense. Um, but the other the other piece of that is, and the take home message, if if folks don't take home anything else, is whenever I lecture on this topic. Uh, or TBI in general, um, and somebody asked me about when it is appropriate to give uh, or make some type of intervention for uh, concerns for increasing in, uh, intracranial pressure in a worsening exam, I'm usually very liberal, and I tell them that if you have an exam change and you can't attribute that with almost relative certainty to anything else that you've done or any other injury that that patient has, then go ahead and, and, and give them some osmotic uh, therapy or, or reposition them if you have to or give them a pain med if, if you're concerned that uh, their pain or their anxiety is causing an increase in intracranial pressure or, 
or maybe a seizure medication if you're concerned that they might be experiencing some type of uh, some type of seizures, whether it's intermittent episodes or a non-convulsive status epilepticus. Uh, because as as I think folks are recognizing now, it's not that cut and dry Cushing's response or that blown pupil and that contralateral weakness like we talk about with that with that ascending subtype of DTH or that uncle herniation. Now we've got Paranaut syndrome with the posterior types and uh, we've got all that we talked about with the subfalcine herniation. So when in doubt, if you think that it's a, it's an intracranial pressure problem and that brain is not able to accommodate that additional pressure, then go ahead and make your interventions because, uh, because if you get to those stages with blown pupils in uh, uh, Cushing's triad, um, then a lot of times you're, you're already behind the curve and you're, and you're rushing to catch up and save that patient's life. So it's all about recognizing trends. It's all about recognizing changes in the exam, sometimes very subtle changes. Um, but, but those are the types of things that you can pick up uh, and, and really make a difference when you have the opportunity to do so. But going back to your original question, is there, is there a major change in any of the guidelines that we've presented so far in terms of treatment? Um, uh, for these patients, uh, uh, considering now that, that we, we know a little bit more about the different subtypes uh, or, or uh, different types of categories of, of uh, cerebral herniation syndrome, no. It's, it's more about uh, uh, knowledge and empowering individuals to, to look for these types of things and to make uh, interventions sooner rather than later. Yeah, you know, definitely opening opening the aperture of the, the types of signs and symptoms that you could find uh, that can lead you towards, hey, this could be a, an ICP issue versus, um, you know, explaining away some kind of finding because of medications or, you know, a spinal injury or, you know, whatever else comes in, comes into your head. Um, but always keeping that, you know, that ICP issue, especially when you know that they have a, a head injury of some kind. Um, but uh, you mentioned osmotic therapy. Uh, when it comes to treating uh, uh, TBIs or uh, herniation, increased ICP. Um, but you generally, the one that's the intervention that's talked about first, I guess, is like your your first line try there is some kind of hyperventilation or positioning. Um, in, your ex- in your experience, how well does hyperventilation actually work? So the, the answer is it depends. And I think you're absolutely right to start off um, when we say that a lot of times, a lot of people talk about word associations and buzzwords, right? And I think one of the things that immediately jumps into somebody's mind when they hear about herniation is, is hyperventilation. And that's because for a long time, that was one of the things that we would do. And um, it's not that there's not a role for hyperventilation. You just have to know the limits of that and, and what it is that you're actually trying to do when, uh, when you're hyperventilating a patient. So in general, as a reminder, our goal is to keep uh, the PaCO2 between 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury. If you end up hyperventilating the patient and lowering the PaCO2 below 35, that's what we call therapeutic hyperventilation. And we know that continuous hyperventilation is of no use. So you can't do that for long periods of time and get a good effect. One, it will vasoconstrict and it can cause uh, it can cause strokes. So now you're just you're just causing secondary brain injury and making the situation worse. But the other thing is that the cerebral arterioles progressively dilate and return to baseline uh, diameters within about 24 hours. So even when the PaCO2 is maintained at a lower level, 
you're not gaining anything after a while. So it's, it's just not helpful to do that. And you have to consider the effects that you have potentially on, on bicarbonate ions that might buffer cerebral acidosis and how that can potentially be, be painful as well. So, uh, so continuous, continuous hyperventilation, definitely not. Intermittent hyperventilation, the reason that you would do that, and some people have moved away from this because now we're able to give osmotic therapy so quickly. We've talked about giving it through peripheral lines if we don't have central access, which is traditionally how it's been given, or even IOs, um, since we've demonstrated that that's safe, uh, effective, and rapid in its therapeutic effect. So some people have decided to just sort of nix hyperventilation from their, uh, from their guidelines at all. But if you were going to use it, uh, and it would be effective for a short period of time, if you were going to use it, it would be as a bridge to something else. I don't have 23% or 3% or whatever hypertonic solution I've got available uh, uh, ready to give right now. What's something that we can do to temporize uh, and get some of that pressure down and stop that herniation while I get that therapy on board? Well, that would be that hyperventilation but you're probably going to want to stop that as soon as you get the therapeutic effect uh, from your osmotic therapy. Um, the other situation would be if you are a couple of minutes out from a surgeon and you know that they have the capability uh, to do something like a decompressive hemicrany, that would be an appropriate time to, to hyperventilate for 15, you know, 20 minutes or so uh, because, you, because you're right outside the door uh, of, a, of, a, of an OR with somebody who's going to be able to take care of that patient. Other than that, you're, you're really risking causing additional damage and making the situation worse by continuing to hyperventilate or by, by throwing it in there multiple times. And then the other situation or the other thing to consider, too, is that because of the autoregulatory uh, uh, deficiencies uh, in the reduced cerebral blood flow in the first 24 hours after TBI, I generally tell people, and the textbooks will back me up on this, too, and the experts, the other experts, We'll tell you that you really should try to avoid hyperventilation in the first 24 hours because when you vasoconstrict, you're just going to reduce cerebral blood flow even further uh, in, in somebody who's, who's already is, is already experiencing that as a result of the, uh, the acute phase of their injury. Yeah, the, the, I guess the way I was thinking about it and how I thought to incorporate it into, into what I do is using hyperventilation as more of a test to find out if the patient will respond at all. Um, I've had a few patients that they would not respond to anything. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of an indicator. Um, you know, they're not responding to hyperventilation. They're not responding to positioning. You know, I only have a couple of vials um, of some uh, of osmotic therapy. How many of those do I am I willing to use on this patient who is continually progressing worse? Um, I guess, what do you think about that? Yeah, so that, that's always the tough part about about what folks in the audience have to do. What we have to do as clinicians, is, especially in a resource limited environment, is try and figure out you know who is who is worth dumping our limited number of resources into, or could we end up using everything on this individual? And is that is that the right thing to do if uh, if their injury is so severe that they're probably not going to survive? Um, that's a technique. I, I'll tell you that sometimes you can actually end up being being pretty surprised uh, by the response that you get from a therapy, even though it, it might be similar in ways um, to another one that you have. Many times in the unit, uh, I've given a hypertonic saline, and it really hasn't given me what I was hoping to get out of it in terms of, uh, of ICP lowering effect. 
So we'll try something like mannitol and it will work much, much better. And we'll just decide that, that, uh, that that's an intervention that that patient seems to respond to. And we'll keep going with that. So um, it's not absolute, certainly. Uh, but you do want to know that something that is generally effective and has a good physiologic explanation as to why it would lower, at least temporarily, uh, ICP would work in the hopes that, that it's, uh, it's not a, a raising pressure uh, increase that, uh, that you're probably not going to be able to get under control with the limited resources that you have. So it's a thought, but it's also something that uh, uh, it, it's not foolproof either. So a lot, of, a lot depends on uh, the extent that, uh, that you're hyperventilating to, you know, if you can, if you can monitor exactly what your PA CO2 is, if that's correct, if it's an accurate number. Um, so I wouldn't discount it completely, uh, the possibility of using another therapy, uh, but I could see why somebody might think that way. Okay. Um, another thing, it's kind of a debate at work. So, um, I'll ask you the role of PEEP in ICP. Um, I know of the, there's two things, you know, with any TBI that you have to, you know, really be very, very careful of is, uh, making sure the patient does not become hypotensive and they do not become hypoxic because those two things can be, uh, killers for the TBI patient. Um, now the downside of PEEP is that you can increase inner thoracic pressure, which could, um, decrease, uh, you know, venous return to the heart and, um, et cetera, you know, reduce blood pressure. I guess, um, my PEEP valve can go from zero to 20. Do I have the, uh, the ability to really cause issues with ICP with, with PEEP on a, on a BVM say? Yeah, the, um, so, so the PEEP question, um, in ICP, uh, there's actually good there's good, there's good literature about this, and it, it goes back a number of years. The one that I immediately think of comes, that comes to mind, I think, was, uh, was an AHA journal article from, uh, gosh, it was probably about 12 or so years ago, um, by Schwartz and Baumgartner. Uh, but they had looked at this particular issue, uh, and they had looked at increasing PEEP up to 12 millimeters of mercury. And they didn't really see any significant influence or effect on ICP. And the, the thinking was that the, uh, the changes in cerebral perfusion pressure, uh, pressure were mediated through MAP. So PEEP applications should be safe, uh, uh, provided that, that a, good, a good mean arterial pressure is maintained. So um, I, I think you're right, because the downside, of course, to worrying about increasing the PEEP. And the idea behind that, of course, and the worry behind that, I, I should say, is that by increasing you're increasing intrathoracic pressure. So in theory, that would cause the, uh, uh, the venous drainage from the cranial vault uh, to be less effective or to decrease. And that was one of our compensatory mechanisms going way back to the beginning of our talk uh, about how we mitigate uh, increases uh, in pressure inside of the intracranial vault. Um, but it, it, it just doesn't seem to be the case, as, like, say, as long as your blood pressure is maintained. And, and really, a lot of the more modern tech to, uh, and, and sources will say that up to 15 is actually acceptable and okay to use in a, in a TBI patient. So uh, I wouldn't worry too much about increasing PEEP. I would worry more about if I need PEEP in order to recruit lung and to improve oxygenation, uh, that, that, that that decreased um, uh, uh, oxygenation would be a bigger problem in a patient with severe brain injury because we know 
that hypoxia uh, can increase the risk of death in a, in a patient uh, uh, twofold that has had a traumatic brain injury. So that would be my concern. And uh, I'd, I'd be much, much more worried about that than increasing the PEAT to, to the level that we typically increase it to. So um, is, does that answer the question? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and there, I guess more of the worry was just like you like were mentioning, you know, decreasing uh, venous uh, drainage of the head, and that's going to cause, you know, worsening of your ICP. Um, but I would imagine as long as you're keeping your blood pressure high, um, your goal of maintaining oxygenation, I would think, is, out, is going to outweigh... Um, the risk, I guess, for ICP, knowing that if they become hypoxic, you know, their chances of, of death, you know, go up drastically. That's, um, that's correct. I would imagine if you're if you're that worried about ICP, then then maybe you need to do a treatment um, such as osmotic therapy or something like that and not necessarily worry about uh, changing your PEEP. That's correct. I would I would not worry about PEEP in the ranges that we typically apply it um, in as, as a major um, as a major influence on ICP. Okay. Um. So we definitely hit anatomy pretty pretty hard. Oh yeah. Um. <laughs> so I know. Uh, you know. Uh, I'm going to have to look up all of this stuff again, but. Um, uh, is there any other things that uh, you think we should add? No, I, I think um, I think we covered most of it. My goal was to was to just better define herniation um, and and uh, highlight some of the complexities of that. Maybe give people something to think about in terms of different different types and the way they present, so uh, they're not looking for the for the common signs that we always talk about when we're in uh, when we're in lectures and classes. Uh, and hopefully that that uh, that that makes people. Uh, a little bit better at observing their patients and they'll be able to pick up something going wrong a lot sooner than they might otherwise have. Outstanding. Hey, thank you for coming on tonight. Thanks, Dennis, for having me. It was a pleasure to be on. That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there